Open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. We've been in the chapter in the Gospel of John now for a while. And uh, each week we give a little review just kind of where we've been because we're building on things. And if you miss a Sunday, um, I want to just make you aware of the fact that we do have all of our messages online. Uh, We have a crew back here that works very hard uh, to get things recorded. And um, just invite you to go to, to NBCSJ.org. That's our website. And you can pull us up anytime and, and listen to them. Uh, most of our community group leaders are just really diligent to say, hey, if you didn't, if you didn't hear the message this week because you were working in kids or you were absent, whatever, uh, plug in and, and take a listen to what's happening. Um, last week, just to kind of review where we went, not just last week, but kind of where we've been in general, uh, Ben spoke and, and, um, Jesus had just given his fifth I am statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And uh, what miracle took place last week, church? Those of you who are here. Lazarus. Yeah, what happened to him? Raised from the dead. Okay, so that's where we were. That's where Ben just took us. First part of John chapter 11. And, um, and just kind of an overview of the, of the series reminder. Just remember that signs always point to something more significant than themselves. And that's true as you're driving along the freeway. You're not so much interested in Hamilton Avenue exit one mile as you are being on Hamilton Avenue, right? And so that's the same with Jesus' signs. They're pointing to something greater. With each proclamation, he always backs up his I am statements with some kind of a sign. And that's the way John did it. There are many more miracles Jesus did. You have to remember Jesus was just a miracle Worker, And he just, where he went, things happened. But John records it in such a way that after an I am statement, there's this backing up of the sign or of the statement with a sign, with some kind of a miracle. And with each proclamation and demonstration, people are forced to decide about who this guy is. And there's kind of a sharper picture of Jesus coming into focus. And John, through his literary style, he's just writing to kind of like a dot to dot almost. He's kind of, it's starting to take shape more of who, of who Jesus is. And um, Jesus, of course, is calling for faith uh, in him as the path to God. And he's making really bold, uh, at times, antagonistic kinds of statements along those lines. I put in your notes this, this morning here just this, uh, this, this first miracle that John records in John 2.11. And he says this, this is the first miraculous sign Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And that's what Jesus is doing in these miracles. He's revealing his glory. Remember at the end of the Gospels, Jesus goes back to heaven. So he's an eternal being that was there from the foundation of the world, came and dwelt among us for a season, and then he went back there. And the Bible says he's coming again. And we're going to look at kind of all of that this morning in the passage. It says, and his disciples put their faith in him. And that's what we're doing today. That's what the call is today. It's no different that Jesus is asking for faith. Let me ask those uh, 16 years of age and under to respond to the following, please. Um, let me just ask you this. What makes, what makes Superman super? You put the word super in front of the word man and you get Superman. So what's, what's the deal with Superman? Let me just see a raise of hands. Give me something that makes Superman super. Yeah. Offspring. Yes, Karen, right here. He has super strength and he can fly. Yeah, definitely makes him super. What else? Yeah. He wears tights. You know what? It's super to be able to pull that off, right? I mean, he wears his underwear on the outside of his pants. I mean, that's, that takes guts. Yeah, absolutely, Zach. Way to, way to pull out the deeper meaning. Yeah. He has x-ray vision. Yeah, absolutely. What else about Superman? Anything else? Okay. Okay, big red cape, flies, superpowers. Yeah. What? He's bulletproof, yeah. I mean, he can, he can do all kinds of things, right? Absolutely. So, Superman uh, is, is super for a variety of reasons. We all get that, right? We all understand why that is. Um, let me just include the adults now, for those of you who would, would wish to do this. Um, take the word... You know, we're, we're moving on from Superman. <laughs> Lucas has been on the edge of his chair. He's like, I can't wait. They missed like 27 things. <laughs> that is classic. At the welcome lunch, um, sit at Lucas's table, and he's going to fill you in on all the rest that the kids missed. <laughs> Let me ask a different question, sorry, Lucas. What makes what makes the supernatural super? What's what's different about that versus versus the natural? Help me out with that. Someone other than than those who've answered already. Just what makes supernatural super? Yeah. Okay, you can't see it. Yeah. What else? 
Can't explain it, right, with maybe some of the tools we typically use. We can't do it. We can't do it, okay. Yeah, Stephen. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, okay. Wide variety of answers, right? If you talk about the paranormal, the supernatural, miracles, belief systems, this is super hot topic. I mean, these are on TV shows, and uh, people are thinking about this stuff and wondering, and it's, and it's not just our culture. It's a, it's a cultural thing that kind of spans... Um, Spans the globe and spans time, really. Unusual, defines preset sets of laws, things that we normally think of. For our case this morning, I just want to think about miracles. And I realized that last week we talked about from the scriptures and we taught it as if we actually believe it because we do here at Neighborhood Bible Church, that the miracle that Jesus Christ came and actually raised a dead guy from the dead actually happened. Ben didn't stand up here and teach that as allegory. He didn't stand up here and and say, well, that's just representative. And who can really know? He taught it as fact that that's actually what happened. And so when you think about miracles and when you think about the supernatural and these kinds of things, it's important in your own progression of faith to say, uh, is, is that really happening in here? Or are those stories that we're supposed to kind of draw neat, pithy, Hallmark card kinds of sayings from? And Ben stood up here and accurately handled the word of truth. And he taught it as that's what actually happened. So the supernatural. The Bible speaks about two worlds, really, that kind of coexist and, in fact, interact. And it speaks of this most plainly in the birth of Christ, right, where God became man and, and interacted. But, but in many other ways, there are, there are plenty of scripture and places that talk about the spiritual world and the natural world and how they are, they are both there and they're both real. And this morning, we're going to do what maybe some of you wrestled with last week, and that is take this Lazarus story, this Lazarus account, and kind of look at some responses. The whole idea of seeing both worlds is, is this sense that, you know, my, my senses aren't really telling me the entire story of every last thing that's going on here. And really, we don't need the Bible to, to tell us this. Those who are not Bible-believing, those who are not even religious at all, would say, yeah, there are parts to my life that are just unexplainable, and I can't really figure out why it's there. In fact, our kind of, you know, senses aren't able to, to pull this out. Uh, this last summer, I did what I do often, and that is I went camping, and, um, and we, were, we were hiking up to the top of Vernal Falls, and I've got this really cool picture of, of Curran and Ethan just kind of looking over the falls like, like this. And when you, when you hike, and when you're just out, at, we were at um, Yosemite, and Yosemite's a place that does this for me. It may be the beach for you. It may be a sunset, as Ben said. It may be just intricate little things under a microscope. But there are things in nature that just cause wonder in us, isn't there? And what's fascinating is to get to the top of Vernal, which I've been to many times, and to be up there. I love taking people who've never been to the top of, of a waterfall before because you're up there and there's a, there's a reverent sense of awe that's going on. And it's just really cool. Everyone wants their picture. Everyone wants to go and look over the edge and just kind of marvel at the, at the beauty that's there. I love cruising around Yosemite because everywhere you look, you can, you know, even if you're a terrible photographer, it just makes you good because there's just great subject matter. And by, by, you know, pure, you know, chance, you're, 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 you're going to happen upon an amazing scene. But you just watch people interact with it. And you know in your gut, even if you don't believe in God, you know in your gut, this is more than gravity and, and geology at work here. This is more than just rock and water. Why is it that that waterfall is stirring something in me? Why is it that when I pull into my car and I get out and I just, I just look up and up and it keeps going and I just look at this massive granite wall that I just go, and I'm pretty small and insignificant. There's something in the ocean that I, I love to just look out in the ocean and go, man, if I could see far enough and my eyesight could somehow curve, I could see Hawaii right now. I mean, that's huge. It just goes on so big. And there's something in that. Take music. We just sang. And I don't know about you, but for me, you take three minutes of a song and sometimes it, it pulls together more thoughts and more emotion and more response in me than an entire 40-minute message, than an entire book. 
And it does something in me. It stirs something in me. You think about music, there's no utilitarian value to it, really. And yet people devote their lives to creating it, studying it, critiquing it, dissecting it, and forming it. And music is cross-cultural. And people have always been singing. What is it in there? It's, it's stirring something in us that we can't quite just rationalize. Romantic love. There's another one. We could measure how sweaty our palms get. We could measure how much our heart begins to beat in comparison to when before that person walked into the room. We could measure how much blood leaves our brain and we start feeling lightheaded. We could kind of quantify all of that, but we recognize there's something more going on, isn't there? And we can't even really explain it, even if we can measure it all. We go, yeah, it's something more, though. And so in, in everyone, I, I really do just believe there's this spirit that's there, and, and, and there's more to it. And sometimes people just aren't quite in touch with it. I think a part of it is that the natural world, which is so evident to our senses, I mean, I can, I can feel the texture of this. I can look out and identify colors, and I can talk with people. But our natural world is almost like a curtain that, that's drawn across the spiritual world. And I have to constantly remind myself there is a spiritual world that is, I don't know how even, it's not even more real, it's just as real as everything I see and touch and every face that I walk across and look and person I interact with. Perhaps unbelief in a society that is so mastered and so intent on mastering the material world is common. Maybe it's harder to believe. I think going to places where the material world isn't working out so hot, people are just having an easier time grasping things of the supernatural world. They have an easier time believing and, and observing these, these signs that are all around us. But we're somewhat blinded because we have so much stuff. And frankly, the material world for most of us sitting in this room is working out pretty good. But it can be a crutch. It can be something that blinds. Perhaps this is why Paul says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And that takes intentionality, doesn't it? To fix your eyes on what is unseen. I mean, he just, it's almost like he's oblivious to the paradox that he just wrote there. But if I don't intentionally do that, my eyes will gravitate to the things that I see. <clears throat> Jesus raised a dead man from the grave and brought him back to life. When I make that statement, when someone who was there and observed that, they are forced into some kind of a decision. They are forced into some kind of a response to say, is that true? What's happening here? And I, I use this title this morning of reading signs from another world because these signs are taking place. These miracles are going on and we're forced into reading that and responding to that. What do you do with such a claim? Maybe you've spent your whole life not believing in miracles. And all of a sudden, God's stirring something in you, or you come across someone who says, no, but I'm not one of those whack jobs. I really did get healed. What are you to do with that? You're forced now into a decision and go, it's easy to write off wacky people on TV that are preaching crazy stuff, but I know this person. And they say they talk to a spirit. They say they're indwelled by a Holy Spirit. They say they pray to a God that none of their senses pick up. And people are forced into reaction and response. This passage that we're going to look at, and we're going to pick it up from verse 45, really is the response to the supernatural being done by this, in essence, superman. Jesus looks a little bit like Clark Kent on the outside, I would imagine. Said so there was nothing outwardly that would attract us to him. In other words, he was just a regular guy. He didn't glow. He didn't float. He didn't wear his underwear outside his pants. He just looked really, really regular. Probably pretty Clark Kentish, if you would, if you imagine. But then he, but then he starts doing these things and he does them publicly and he does them in a way that, as we'll see this morning, begins to cause a, a stir. Here's the big idea, by the way, for this morning. I don't want to just read about other people. Sometimes it's easier. I just did some premarital counseling this week. My wife and I are doing it. And, um, and uh, maybe, maybe Laura and Ben would remember Bob and Sherry. There's this curriculum we use. And 
We do a case study, and they use Bob and Sherry. And it's always easier to look at some other couple and their issues and talk about it because it's not your own, right? It's easier to like identify. Now, what was wrong with their deciding, you know, decision-making process? Oh, well, it's da 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 And then it's like, okay, well, let's turn the lens a little bit now on us. And it's always easier to talk about kind of a case study. Here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to just do a case study and study the response of all the people and what they had to, to this miracle of Lazarus. I want to turn it on us. I'll just tell you up front, that's where we're going. I'm not going to bait and switch you. I want you to evaluate how you respond to the miracle of, G- of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so that's going to take introspection in the Holy Spirit. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray, God, that you would enable me to speak your words of truth. I pray, Father, for receptive ears. I thank you, God, for each person here valuing, hearing the word of God. And, uh, Lord, we pray that this morning you would give us hearts and minds and wills that would submit to your word as authority. And, Lord, for those who are the unconvinced, I pray, God, that you would convince them, that you would draw them, that your voice would be calling them, Father, out of a life of just being led on their own and submitting to a good father and a good king. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word. And we just uh, pray that you would illuminate it for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's what I want to do right now. I need every middle schooler in the room to stand up and uh, just stay in your seats. But go ahead and stand up. Pop up. Thank you. Okay, I want you guys to watch me. This is pretty cool. You guys, a lot of you are wearing your following uh, shirts from winter camp. That's awesome. Um, all right, I want you to watch me very closely, okay? Everyone, everyone see me? I see eyes on everyone, okay? Um, okay, watch this. Ready? <clears throat> you watching? Okay, ready? See that? Watch closely. Brittany's like, this is really weird. Here we go. Watch it. Watch it. Oh. Okay, now, watch this. Okay, why don't you guys stand right in front here? Okay. Here's what I need. I need four of you to stay standing. I need the rest of you to sit down. Give middle schoolers a hand right now. Now, here's what I need to ask. I need to ask, um, I'll, start with, uh, I'll start with you, Karen. Why, why did you just walk to the front of the room? Because Turn that way and speak loud. Because my dad put his hand up here. <laughs> okay, here's, here, let me ask it a different way to you, Zach. Um, why did you come up when you did? Because I pulled my ear and what? Because Curran told you to. Okay, but Curran was here and you were sitting back there. Beforehand, Curran told you what? Okay, so and what was the sign? Pulling on your ear, okay. Lizzie, why are you here? Because Kelly asked me to. Okay, and you believed her. Okay, all right, here's what you guys get to do. There's four items right there. We're going to have ladies pick first, and then you guys can pick. And uh, here's, here's what just went on. Some of you are like just going to be all distracted by the candy. Go eat and enjoy. Yeah. All right, one more hand. One more hand for these guys. You're like, you're like why are we giving them a hand? You're, you're giving them candy. That's their reward right there. All right, what you just... What you just saw was just a little parable of, of what just went on, okay? Let me, let, me kind of, let me kind of break it down for you. Just as these students um, were looking for a sign that was revealed to them, so we have been given signs in Scripture, in life, that reveal to us, that tell us what is happening, Okay? You notice that some of the middle schoolers stood there wondering why on earth I was doing all this nonsense up here. You'll notice that immediately when I pulled on my right earlobe, four of them walked forward. I only spoke to two of them. I told two of them some very specific instructions, and I let them know there was a sign coming and to do this or that. In the Bible, it's called prophecy. Let me just read Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. That's God revealing to mankind what's about to happen. Here's the sign. The virgin virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 
Christianity is different than any religion in this, in this sense. We have been given signs. Please, if you've never done this and your faith is wavering, I will gladly walk through this with you. Go study the prophecy of Scripture. You will come to the realization that God has, in fact, written a book. And you will begin to realize that this really collection of books, 66 books, that prophecy went on hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene. And these were signs that God was saying, look for these things. Look for these things. Watch for this. And when this is going on, look out. That's the Messiah. And guess what? There are prophecies in this book that have yet to take place. And so we're to be studying. We're to be looking. We're to be asking the Holy Spirit. These disciples had God moving in their hearts before Jesus even came. They were looking for the Savior. They were already on this journey. And just as in this room, a handful of people knew the second that the right earlobe was pulled, come forward because a sign was revealed to them. So we have signs revealed to us that, that are available to us in, in the form of prophecy. Here's the second thing I want you to notice, that just as these students had freedom to choose to believe and act, so do we. My son could have chosen not to believe me and go, that always sets me up. He always burns me with these things. I'm not coming up there. If that was the case, he probably wouldn't have come. Here's what's even more remarkable. I only spoke to Curran and Kelly. Kelly then went and talked to someone else. Curran then went and talked to someone else. I told him specifically, tell one other person. So Zach, on the basis of not even talking to me, by faith, chose to get up, risk coming up here in front of a lot of people because he thought there was some reward in it. With, it started with the word C, right? And he's like, eh, worth the risk, you know? You know what? It's the same way with us. Based on the testimony of others, you and I have an opportunity to choose to act and respond and believe. And our hope is in the living God. Our hope is in the testimony that other people have given to us. Finally, this. Everyone saw the same sign, but the response varied. Everyone saw it. Everyone see me pull my ear? Some of you were like, yeah, I barely remember it. Though. I didn't know that was the sign until it was set up here. So everyone saw the same exact sign, but a handful responded. Okay? Let that just picture kind of permeate where we go from here. John 11, verse 45, check it out. It says this, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did. What did Jesus just do? Raise Lazarus from the dead. Just want to keep really clear. That's what John chapter 11, verse 44 verses is all about. And had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. In your notes this morning, there's a section here that just talks about the responses of four groups of people. Here's the first two groups, believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers. Verse 45, many of the Jews saw what Jesus did and put their faith in him. You know what's a great question that never ever gets boring to me? is someone who claims to be a Christian, claims to be a follower of Christ, I love to just ask, what was it that made you, what was it that led you to believe in Jesus Christ? What was it? Because the answers are so varied. It's really remarkable to see how God led them on this journey to come to a place of belief. For some, it was overnight. They came to the end of themselves, and God just illuminated their eyes. They're like, man, I've heard this my whole life, and one time... It's like my eyes were opened. It's almost like Paul. It's like, you know, you just, yeah, I get it, Jesus. I'm yours. For others, they're like, man, God had to just chip away at my resistance day in and day out. For others, it was this series of people, and they're like, man, this circumstance was going on, and that person was saying that, and I didn't see it at the time. But then this event kind of was this catalyst, and I went back and looked at the last several months of what God was doing, and I just finally broke down and, and realized this is the king. This is true. I've got to place my faith in Christ. Some saw signs, many saw signs, and just put their faith in Him. Maybe some of your stories include signs and wonders. And you just say, man, the second I prayed, this happened. And it hasn't been easy, but I've been a believer ever since. I can't walk away from that. I can't deny that. 
So there are the, the believers. John, as he's writing, just contrasts them with the word but. He says, but some, contrasting them to the believers. Now here's the question that pops into my mind. Are these merely like the undecided? Is this a group that hated Jesus and was going around trying to look for his ill will? Or somewhere in between? You know what? John just doesn't even go to any detail about it. All he does is he contrasts them with believers. He says there were some that put their faith in him, but some. And what did they go do? What was their response to this? What was their response to the same sign, the same miracle? A whole group of people say, we're putting our faith in you. What must we do? Tell us where are you going? We'll follow you. We're your disciples. But some went and did something else. Really, they went and snitched. They went to the religious leaders. I don't think all of them had ill intent, per se, for Jesus, but it was unknown. It was very different. And they're like, whoa, something went on here. We don't know what it was, but something's going on. We better go to those that we feel comfortable with, to to that which we know. There may be even people here who were somewhat God-fearing and saying, we should tell our leaders about this. There may be pure motives in this. But they're contrasted with those who put their faith in him. This radical claim of Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. And then this this raising of Lazarus, calling him forth from the grave, forced people into like dividing lines, into camps. And they just were left going, man, I've I've got to choose here, make a decision. The same is true today. Go and proclaim this from your cubicle tomorrow. Pop up like a mole and just shout this you know, to your office, let's say. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. And then just sit back at your computer. <laughs> You've got mail. I mean, you know, the response would start to come in. You may get someone who's like, dude, I'm a Christian. I can't believe you just did that. You've given me so much courage. Chances are you'll get people angry about that. Pipe down, you religious wing that. Keep that junk out of the office. Who are you to say God's wrath is on anyone? I watched what you did at the lunchroom yesterday. You're not perfect. I mean, it would just roll in. If you stood up and say, God is good, and sat back down, it wouldn't be quite the same, would it? So, the more radical the claim, the more radical the sign, the greater the response, I think, that's there. I used the the Hamilton Avenue exit earlier. That sign may or may not cause much stir. If there's a hospital on Hamilton Avenue and you're dying, that's a big deal. But to most of us, we could drive by that sign and not have it be a big deal. If you're driving along at 70 miles per hour and it says bridge out ahead, that's a radical claim. That's a radical sign that you will either slam on your brakes and figure it out or you'll be like, wrong, and just floor it right, and keep on going. But that will force most people into more of a decisive kind of a thing. When Jesus raises someone from the dead, that's a really big public deal. And people are forced into into more divisive kinds of camps. So you have believers and you have unbelievers. Some would say here today even, yeah, but I'm neutral. I'm really not very religious. I try to do good. I live a basically moral life. And I would just say to that this, this word from Luke 11. Luke 11, 23, Jesus said this. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Remember this image of sheep? So it's saying that if you're not on Jesus' team, you're in there scattering. You're working against God, against his purposes. And that's a really heavy thing to say. That's a really exclusive kind of a thing to say. That's a very offensive, unpolitically correct thing to say. And yet Jesus says it. Those who claim indifference are really opposed to Jesus and therefore under judgment for sin. And that's a reality that the Bible teaches that we either come to grips with that and go, man, I thought I liked the Bible and God and I even thought I liked this church, but that's kind of rude. That's kind of exclusive. 
And we just have to come to grips. We prayed this morning that our lives would be in submission to the Bible and not vice versa. We can have the Bible submit to us or we can be in submission to the Bible. Let me move on to a a different group of, of people here. There's the leaders and kind of the crowds. Look at verse 47, and I'll read on through the end of the chapter. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. Isn't it curious? They didn't dispute the miracle. They didn't sit there and go, he's pulling off magic tricks. They said he's performing miraculous signs. So they saw it. They were there and they witnessed it. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's the goal. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, it says, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. Isn't it interesting that God can use the office of high priest, even if the person is totally against Christ? He'll speak through leaders and and he guides and directs. And that's what a sovereign God is all about. Verse 54, Uh, no, I'm sorry, verse verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many of them went from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So two more responses. You have the leaders, which really just formed a a murderous plot. Interesting that here from this group that wants to get rid of Jesus, they're actually giving testimony 2,000 years later to us that the miracle was valid. Isn't that remarkable? The enemies of God are actually giving testimony. This is true. This really happened. But the problem with them is they're blinded by the material world. Isn't it easy when you have absolutely nothing to be a revolutionary? Isn't it easy to just say, man, I would give it all. Well, yeah, but you're broke. You have no job. You have no girlfriend or family. Um... Yeah, that's a pretty easy statement to make. Those who've worked their way up the company, those who've invested a lot of time and energy to to get to where they are, to establish their position on the committee, in the company, whatever it might be, all of a sudden then it's, it's more about the temptation to keep the status quo. And revolutionaries sound pretty threatening to you. And some young punk kid comes into the company and wants to just change everything. You go, whoa. Chill out, little buddy. (laughs) You know what these leaders are blinded by is their their place of power, their place of position. It's so ironic that Jesus comes and uses all this kingdom language. He says, I'm here to establish a kingdom. I'm here to call people into that kingdom, and this kingdom will never fade away. You get to be in my kingdom and a part of what God is doing. And yet you have the leaders of the Jewish people who were ruled and controlled by the Romans, and what they were trying to guard and fight over was their tiny little sliver that the Romans were giving them. We'll let you have your little religious festivals. We'll let you have your place of honor. And they were just clamoring and fighting so they could keep that little sliver when God wants to give them so much more. It begs the question in my life, how many times has a sign been there that God is wanting to lift my eyes off of the seen world? And fix my eyes on the unseen kingdom that he's calling me to be a part of ushering in. And yet I fight and clamor for my little sliver piece of the pie. 
these leaders read the sign. They saw the same exact sign as other people, but their conclusions were different. They saw it as a threat to get rid of, and so they started to plot to murder Jesus. How about the crowds, the curious, the seekers? Just a couple points with this. Intense interest in Jesus doesn't equate to saving faith. My son and I on the way in, he was reading from this Kids Illustrated Bible. It breaks down the number of verses in the Gospel of Luke, the number of verses written by each author of the New Testament. You know, you can memorize all kinds of crazy facts about the Bible. You could be a huge Bible scholar. You could be a brainiac that just knows and can discuss theology at all levels and not be saved. You could be intensely interested in Jesus and be in Bible study and listen to podcasts seven nights a week and not be saved. So there's crowds who are looking for Jesus. they, they want to be in the mix of it. Where is this Jesus? Is he coming at all? They're talking about it. They're discussing spiritual things at the coffee shop. They're in community groups. They're just all that stuff. But they're not saved. That doesn't necessarily equate to being saved. Here's the other interesting thing. The proximity to signs and the proximity to new life doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you'll be saved either. There were hordes of people in this day and age, that saw all kinds of miraculous signs, watched blind guys have mud in his eye and lame people walk, and their lives were left unchanged. Same is true today. In a church service exactly like this, people can walk out of here and be moved by the Holy Spirit and say, I give up. Man, this is totally real. My life totally radically changed from a church service. That was true of me. An evening church service that I thought was me like every evening church service I'd ever been to. In a moment of time, God just opened my eyes to some things. There were hundreds of other people in that room with me. Probably went out to dinner or did their Sunday night dessert thing, whatever they did. They would never point back to that night as anything special. So signs can happen, and just being close to that, even within the same family, the same event can occur, and you can have different kinds of responses. I told you I'd do this, but what about you? What about your belief? Radical signs force a decision. Radical statements, the Bible is true. And these signs actually took place. That forces a decision in you. Maybe you're saying, well, maybe, parts of it, or absolutely, or not at all. I would just pose that question to you. How do you read the signs that have been provided to you? Most of us in this room have more than one Bible. Many of you in this room, because we're trained this way, have a Bible and have it open right now. The signs are in there, right? All the books of law, all the books of prophecy, all the testimony of people through the ages are right here available to me. And yet the response to it can be, can be varied. Because you and I weren't there, you and I rely on the testimony of others. And some people, this is the biggest hurdle to Christianity and believing in God. They say this. Christians always say the Bible's in, inerrant, has no mistakes in it. It's written by God. It was, it was inspired by God. And the Bible, in fact, says that about itself. And sometimes people use this either as a crutch, an excuse, a way out. But sometimes I think it's a genuine hurdle. They say, you know what, I just... How can we know that so many years later this is true or not? If you have your Bible open to John chapter 11, I want you to look ahead to John chapter 12 for just a moment. And look down in verse 17. We're going to get here next week, but read this with me, or just listen to it as I read it out loud, and realize that there were people one week later from this event taking place, that in essence are in the very similar position you and I are in. They were not there, and they did not see it firsthand, and they had to rely on the testimony of others. Look at verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, catch this, continued to spread the word. They're telling the story. All these people are coming up for Passover. Did you hear what happened? Hey, come here. Uncle Joe, you got to check this out. i got to tell you what I just saw. It's the craziest thing. They're spreading the word of what happened. Verse 18. Many people, catch this. Now, this is not the crowd that had been there and witnessed it and were spreading the word. This is the people they're telling. Catch verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So there it is. Based on the testimony of other people, 
They went out to meet Jesus and investigate this for themselves. Isn't that where you and I are at? And you say, yeah, but it is, it's different with talking to that person. That's this, part of this is that two worlds thing. And that we can't transport in time and talk to the people. But the fact is, in the Gospel of John, we have an eyewitness account. Not only an eyewitness, but a, a guy who for three plus years was part of the inner sanctum with Jesus. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Heard God speak audibly out of the sky and say, this is my son. I mean, he was there. Uh, first, first John is a, is a great passage to, to hear just kind of the passion in John's voice. Just listen to this. This is First John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, we are getting to interact with a first-hand account, eyewitness of Jesus Christ. You hear the words in there. I touched him. I leaned my, my head back against his chest. I ate meals with him. I've seen it. I heard it, and I proclaim it to you. I testify to you. This is true. In your notes, I want to just wrap up with a few thoughts, and that is these reading lessons. How do you read signs from another world? When you see something miraculous go on, you can have one of these four responses. You could have probably a, a different response. But here's just a couple of thoughts. Number one is this, that signs alone cannot provoke faith. Even when uh, Jesus raises a dead man from, from the grave, some refuse to believe. And it's just great the way the Bible teaches the Bible. If you read enough of the Bible, you begin to catch the verses over here and you go, wow, this is illustrating that principle right there. Listen to Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 31. This is Jesus saying, he said to them, this is a crowd of people, uh, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Here's the misconception that I have and you have sometimes. You know what? If God would just write, if he would take all the stars, manipulate them and move them over into Jim, follow me, then, then my friend would believe. You know what, if someone would just have a modern-day miracle right in front of my face, then I'd be thoroughly convinced. You know what Jesus says to that? Not true. In fact, even if someone is raised from the dead right in front of your face, and you know he was dead, and there was fear of being a stench in the place because he was dead, dead, and you saw that, even then, people won't believe. So Jesus says this, and here it is illustrated right in front of our face. Because it's not a matter of information or data. It's a matter of hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness. And that's a common theme. So here's what's, here's what's great for you and I is that when we cast the seed for the gospel and we go, well, I get tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to mention the prophecies because I know they're in there and I know that Jesus fulfilled them, but I don't know where they are. You know what? Relax a little bit. I mean, study and grow and have an answer for when people ask you, why you believe what you believe, but relax a little bit. Listen to Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Is that true in your life? If you believe it and it's your hope and your eyes are fixed on the unseen kingdom, of course not. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's something miraculous that goes on when I stand up here and read the Bible out loud. We want to always be reading scripture from the front and giving attention to that. You ought to memorize some passages that just speak them because they're God's word and it's living and it's active and it cuts to the heart of men and women in ways that you and I could never cleverly devise words to do. And it's powerful. The gospel is complete and utter foolishness to those who are hard-hearted and spiritually blind. But to those God's wooing and God's calling, you might be the person that kind of unlocks that last little piece of the puzzle and you just share the gospel. You're like, I know this sounds a little crazy, 
but this is true. God came down in the form of a, of a baby. And on and on you go to the point of the cross and the resurrection. And partway through the story, you realize they're just crying. And you realize God's at work here. And you go, man, I've, I've not done anything here. That's the power of the gospel. To save people. Every single person who believes. What conclusions you and I make about Jesus are huge. Here's the second one. The mildly indifferent are on the same team as the murderous haters. The leaders who are threatened by this and want to go out and plot Jesus' death are in the same camp, are on the same team as those who are just coldly indifferent to it. They see the sign and they go, eh. They hear the gospel and they go, eh. Maybe. I don't know. Let's go play some video games. And the Bible puts, puts those two in the same camp. And that's a, that's a scary thought for those of us who might pass away today on the way home from church. I don't know how much time I have left. And there's an urgency when I look in the hearts and faces of people and I just go, man, we don't know where, what tomorrow holds. We hold very little in our control, really. And to realize that these same camps of people the mildly indifferent, and those who are plotting to take his life, a few months later here, are going to be shouting at the top of their lungs, crucify him! Kill Jesus! And they're going to be swept up into anti-Jesus movement. Jesus condemns cold indifference. If you're sitting here today, and you were like I was at one point, just on the fence, and just going, I don't even know if I have time or effort to really look into this. Jesus condemns that. He condemns thrill seekers. In John 6, we saw, he said, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you, had, you ate your loaves and had your fill. In John chapter 2, we saw false believers. He says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, catch this, many people saw miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. Sounds good so far. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about men, but he knew what was in a man. There's a surfacey false belief that goes, even after seeing a, a sign. This is a condemning passage to those who would say that they're just lukewarm. And it's eye-opening to me. And I pray it's not true in my life. But Matthew eleven twenty says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. Saying this, or, or be, in, most, uh, in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And then he goes on to say, Woe to you. And he starts calling out city after city. He says, man, if the signs that went on in your walls were done in these heathen cities that you look at and go, they're just godless, man, they would have been, they would have been just turning and repenting. But you stand there stiff-necked. I look at America, a country that's been blessed beyond measure. And I just say, Lord, what if, what if there are signs in our midst that we're not repenting from? We're not turning from our sin from. We don't want that to be true of us. Finally, the response of the leaders illustrates why, why all quarrels occur. Like I said, the Bible just teaches itself. This is an illustration of what Jesus' brother James wrote in James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he asks. This is from James. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. Jewish leaders wanted something and weren't getting it. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. They took that literally. That's literally happening in churches these days. Where people are walking in the back doors of churches and shooting pastors, shooting people. It's gotten to that level, hasn't it? I mean, we read stories. You can go on the internet and find the stories. But it happens within the walls of families too. Quarrels and fights with those that you love dearly. And James says it's because of these battles that rage in you. You want stuff. Position and power and notoriety. 
You quarrel and fight, James goes on to say, but you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So you may spend it on your own pleasure. And then he asks this question. He says, says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you know that Satan will always twist a sign of God into something it's not? He'll just take a miraculous sign and pervert it. Didn't he do that with the religious leaders? Here's a miraculous sign. Someone's raised from the dead. That's a good thing. We would say, wow, there's a way out. There's victory over death. And in the hearts and minds of the leaders, it became a threat, right? Sometimes God may be trying to provide you with a sign. And Satan comes in and, and, and twists it. Ah, that's okay, but it's incomplete. That's what he did with the garden. God puts a tree there and Satan comes in and says, did God really say? And he begins to just twist the words of God. He doesn't say, hey, I'm anti-God. Come follow me. He comes in, he just takes the sign, he twists it just a little bit. And then quarrels and fights and things come on. I want to ask the band to come on up. They're going to close us in a song. I've been asking this all morning, but what about you? What is your response to the sign of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? What is your response to a sign when God miraculously answers a prayer and you stop and think about it and realize, wow, I asked for that. God, you orchestrated that. This happens on an ongoing basis as we plan worship services and we think through ahead where we're going, but then God orchestrates something just so. And we realize it's a holy moment where God's been at work. Jesus calls us to repent, which means turn from sin. Jesus calls us to believe in him. And sometimes he used words like hold to my teaching, but in a word, it's the word obey. He calls us to obey. The whole term, the following, is about junior high students, middle school students, obeying, walking in the ways of Jesus. We're going to sing this song, All Bowed Down. I want you to look at this verse on the screen right here. Realizing there are two worlds. There's a king. There's a kingdom. There's a material world that almost pulls a curtain over our eyes so we can't see spiritually what's happening all around us, even in this moment. To realize that every knee will bow, but that we have the choice to do it freely right now and join with angels in singing and celebrating and showing off God's wonder and power is an awesome thing. Just close your eyes for one moment. Band, you can get it going. Here's what it says, Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen?